This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, we're examining the art of posthumous publication. As the estate of Anthony Burgess, one of the central activities of the Burgess Foundation is to find new ways of publishing Burgess's work. The Orwell edition of the works of Anthony Burgess, published by Manchester University Press, is key to this ambition and has managed to bring several of Burgess's books back into print with annotated restored texts, editor's introductions and appendices of previously unpublished material. But posthumous publication is not a simple process, and it introduces many ethical questions. As part of the process of posthumously publishing Burgess's work, we enter into conversation with other estates and editors to find out how they are overcoming some of the problems inherent in this kind of publishing. In this episode of the Burgess Foundation podcast, we talk to Emily Skillings, the editor of a posthumous collection of poems by the seminal American poet John Ashbery, titled Parallel Movement of the Hands. John Ashbery was one of the most celebrated American poets of the 20th century. He is perhaps best known for his 1975 collection Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, which won three major American prizes, the Pulitzer, the National Book Award, and the National Book Critics Circle Award. The earlier book, Some Trees, published in 1956, was selected by W. H. Auden for the Yale Younger Poets series. Over the course of his career, he was awarded two Guggenheim Fellowships and was a MacArthur Fellow from 1985 to 1990. In 2012, he was presented with a National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama. Ashbury died in 2017 at the age of 90. Emily Skillings is a poet, editor and creative writing teacher based in Brooklyn, New York, where she also worked as John Ashbury's assistant between 2010 and 2017. She received her MFA from Columbia University School of the Arts and she currently teaches creative writing at Yale, NYU and Columbia. She is also a member of the Belladonna Collaborative, a feminist poetry collective, small press and events series. Her first collection of poetry, Thought Not, was called Fabulously Eccentric, Hypnotic and Hypervigilant by Publishers Weekly. Parallel Movement of the Hands, five unfinished longer works by John Ashbury, is available now from Carcanet. For more information on Emily, visit www.emilyskillings.com. Now we'll hand over to Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to Emily in July 2021. It's a great pleasure, it's an honour to welcome Emily Skillings to the Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Uh, Emily is the editor of uh, a new book, Parallel Movement of the Hands, Five Unfinished Longer Works by John Ashbury, and she's kindly agreed to talk to us about her work as an editor and also say something about her association with John Ashbury. So Emily, welcome, first of all. Uh, It's very good that you're here. Maybe I could begin by asking you to tell us something about your involvement with John Ashbury and how you came to meet him. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Andrew. It's a real honor to be here as well. I first um, met John Ashbery, well, I was recommended for the position of his assistant, and that was the first time I I met him. Although, as I say in the introduction, I didn't actually see him um, the first time I met him, which is a little bit of a funny story. But uh, my mentor and undergraduate 
in my undergraduate studies was a poet named Marcella Durand, and she had been Ashbery's assistant. And she she was helping me with this project I was writing. And after the project was finished, she wrote me an email and said, hey, John Ashbery's looking for a new assistant. Would you be interested? And I, of course, gasped <laughs> upon receiving this email and said, yes, of course, I'll drop everything I'm doing. Um, and I went to interview for the position with David Kermani, who is John Ashbery's longtime partner and later husband. And I didn't get to meet Ashbery, but I did hear him typing away in Wonderful. the room. And he was working on his preface to his translation of Rambo's Illuminations. And um, of course, then when I did meet John, I discovered that he was the most, one of the most lovely, sweet, funny, and generous people I've ever met. But um, it, was, it was a kind of larger than life experience hearing this poet who I so admired uh, just typing away, work at work in the next room while I'm kind of nervously answering interview questions. That's a great uh, story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what did you think of Ashbury's work before you met him? And how have those opinions changed over time? So I, I was familiar with his work and I did love it. I, I was I was assigned Ashbury first in actually, strangely, a compositional writing class. I had this great um, compositional writing teacher when I was an undergrad and, you know, we were writing essays about poems and it was, that was when my, I'd always loved poetry, but actually writing about them and kind of getting to close read them was when my love kind of bloomed into something else. And uh, I was assigned a, an anthology of postmodern American poetry. And one day I didn't really kind of like what had been assigned. And so I, I just decided to keep reading um, until I found something that I really loved or that really kind of arrested me. And I came across Ashbery and I hadn't read him before. Um, and I was just so blown away. The poem I read was um, a picture of little J.A. and a prospect of flowers. And I was just so amazed and I didn't know that a poem could do what this poem was doing. And I, I was kind of hooked, but I did, when I did start working for him is when I really started kind of diving into the work. Um, when I, I read a little bit out of order. <laughs> so I, I think I started with Girls on the Run um, and, and read some other works. And I was always just amazed at how, how they varied from each other and how they created a, a, an environment that I that I had agency in to make connections inside. They weren't didactic poems. They were really like these things I could explore and make my own connections. And that was something I so, so appreciated and continue to appreciate about his work. One of the points you make in the introduction is that he left behind uh, such a, a broad body of work, um, unpublished work that is, including shorter poems and and these more substantial the uh, the, the five um, unfinished longer works and I, I wonder if you could tell us how your edition of parallel movement of the hands came about Ashbury had just died had just passed away um, in 2017 and in 2018 in the spring I was packing up his papers which were going to the the archive, which is at Harvard. And I came across um, 
two of these unfinished longer works, the Kane Richmond Project and one called The Art of Finger Dexterity. Then I, I called it the Cherney Poems. I didn't, I wasn't really sure what the title was. And I had actually made a folder for the, the, the Cherney Variations as they were called at the time, these, the serial work um, responding to Carl Cherney's opus um, 740, The Art of Finger Dexterity. And I'd made a folder for it and kind of forgotten about it for photocopies of it. And at the time I was kind of putting together some poems that Ashbery had liked, but that he hadn't included in his more recent collections. Um, poems that I could tell that he, that he liked, that he had published in journals, um, but that didn't ultimately make the cut. And I was kind of putting those together in case something, someone wanted to do something with them. But then I came across these other works and I was so excited by them and I wanted to learn more about them. So I turned to, to people like David Carmani, um, people like Eugene Ritchie and Roseanne Wasserman who were dear friends and also editors of Ashbery um, and started to learn more about what they were and why Ashbery didn't publish them. And what I found was that well, he liked the, the works and was obviously very invested in them. In fact, he kept um, revising them long, long after he had finished writing them in some cases. What I found is that he felt they didn't fit with, within or inside other books he was publishing at that time. There were these kind of misfit projects that he had that he had really liked. He also, something that's very important, hadn't sent them away to the archives. So there had been shipments to the archive before, and um, he hadn't he hadn't you know included these works in those shipments, and so that to me was an indication that they were still even though they were kind of abandoned some of them they were still considered very much in progress, um, and that felt exciting and full of possibility to me because the idea of the unfinished is so much in Ashbery's published work as well the. The, the poem that is open-ended, the poem that is in a closed text. Um, so that was that was really exciting to kind of come across these works, and I found I couldn't put them down, um, especially these two longer works that I that I'm talking about, the Kane Richmond Project, which is kind of a full-length um, manuscript-length poem, and the Art of Finger Dexterity, and I was so delighted by them, I immediately. Um, called Kermani, and I called a friend of mine who was an early editor on the project, Farnish Fati, and and I was like, oh my god, I just found these great works. So it, it felt like a real, um, in a moment of sadness, it felt like a real moment of um, joy and possibility. That must have been a very exciting moment. You make the argument in your introduction about openness as uh, something that's, that's maybe very much at the core of Ashbury's poetic. And I wonder if you could say more about the, the critical appendices and the introduction. Um, and in framing the work, it seems to me you've also succeeded in, in, in leaving it open, in not trying to close down interpretation of it, which is a remarkable thing to have done in relation to, to this uh, uh, you know, exciting and in many ways very challenging body of material. But tell us more about what kind of reader you felt you were addressing and how your responsibility towards the openness of the work came through in your writing that, that goes around these poems. 
Thank you so much for saying that, that uh, about the openness. That was something that I was really trying to, to keep intact while also um, shedding light on a few things. And so I really appreciate you saying that. One of the models was, of course, uh, Mark Ford, who edited um, Ashbery's collected volumes with Library of America. He did a wonderful job kind of bring to light some of Ashbery's many, many references um, in, in those in those volumes. And while I wanted to do that, I couldn't be as comprehensive, right? It would have it would have made the book much too long. Um, and also I didn't know all of the references. But the the most important thing that I wanted to do, instead of explain the poems, which I had no interest in doing, I wanted to provide some transparency in my more significant editorial decisions involved in the work. So sometimes you know, it was unclear, there was a typo and it was unclear what word Ashbury meant. There's a moment in the manuscripts where he has typed a word that could either be impatient or omnipotent. And those are two very different words. And even he was confused as to which word he meant. He had written impatient question mark, omnipotent question mark kind of in the margin. And so I had to kind of suss out which word would be the, mo the most appropriate and also which word the misspelling more clearly resembled. And I found that even though the word started with an O, impatient was the likelier of the two. And it, it made more sense in the context of the passage. Um, but I wanted to provide the, the knowledge that there was that decision made right and so for the for these kinds of things where I had to make a decision where it wasn't cut and dry I wanted to leave a trace of that so that someone in the future could come along and say oh maybe it was omnipotent and that might be important to someone and that someone might not have access to these manuscripts so um if they weren't a scholar I also really wanted this to be a book for people who were both scholars of Ashbury's work or love Ashbury's work, but also people who were coming to his work for the first time. I didn't want it to feel overly academic or interpretive. I wanted it to be to be really open. And so the appendices are kind of like if you feel like doing a deeper dive into the into the into the manuscripts you can, but they're not necessary to read by any means. I also wanted to provide, because the spaces and context in which these poems were found is now gone, right? The Chelsea apartment does not exist anymore. It does exist, but it's probably been remodeled and inhabited by someone else. I wanted to say where they were found, uh, who found them. Kermani found a, a few of the, the manuscripts, where they were found, um, in what state they were found. And so a little bit of that provenance I wanted to be um, inside the work, but I didn't want it to interrupt the work. I didn't want the work to have footnotes or anything like that. And so that's why I included the appendices. So it's really just transparency with regard to my editorial decisions um, so that someone could be interested in or, or disagree with me even that, you know, I wanted to leave open that possibility. Um, a little bit of contextualizing of the provenance and also just when I could shedding light on, on some of the, the really fun and amazing and varying references in the poems. When you came to annotate, was that always a, a clear process or are there moments where um, you you were less sure about a particular piece of reading, how that had informed the, um, the, the, the poems that came out of it? 
Yeah, definitely. There was one um, kind of embarrassing moment where where Ashbery made reference to Land's End, and I thought that he was talking about the American clothing retailer. <laughs> he was actually talking about, you know, the, um, a, a geographical location. Um, and so, you know, there was the, I had some definite false starts, and then I had to kind of rethink what I was doing. There were a few moments where I had to be like, whoa, what am I doing? Is this important that I, you know, that I share this? Um, so I, def- I definitely did cut them cut them back quite a bit um, if I felt that that wasn't important to understanding the work. Because the great thing about Ashbery's poems is that you don't need to know, um, you know, that that quote is a quote by Matthew Arnold, right? In order to appreciate the the poem, you don't need to. It's, it's just kind of bonus <laughs> if you do. Um, it's not necessary. His works don't require that kind of reading, right? Um, and that's what's so wonderful about them. You either know the references or you don't. And if you don't, it's kind of even, it's its own kind of magic. It's very interesting to see the way that in this edition, you've shown your footprints as an editor, um, even when it comes to maybe some lack of clarity about what the, the title or the subtitle of a poem was. And you've you've made decisions, but also um, you've, you've, you've indicated what you've done. Um, I'm thinking about the, um, the the Spy Smasher as a possible title right. for uh, the, the Kane Richmond. Right. I wanted people to know that he was considering Spy Smasher, which is the title of a serial, a Republic serial, I believe, starring Kane Richmond. Um, it's considered to be one of the best serials ever made. It's a really wonderful serial where it's Kane Richmond, who is this serial actor in the 1930s and 40s, plays this kind of Nazi-busting superhero vigilante. Um, and John had obviously seen it. Um, he had printed out some information about Kane Richmond from the internet and about Spy Smasher and some of his other serials. And he was seriously considering that as a title for the project. And so I wanted to make that clear, right, that the, although I stayed with his original title, which he hadn't crossed out, that he also had some other ideas that were interesting. I didn't want to, I wanted to leave John's intentions kind of open because I, again, I wasn't sure of his intentions for the manuscript as a whole. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about the Kane Richmond project. Um, You know, who was Kane Richmond, but also how that poem um, came into being. It's a, a variety of material that's being kind of pulled together and collaged there, I think. Yeah, it's such a wild poem. Uh, John Yao, I was I was corresponding with John Yao, who I sent the poems to very early on. And John Yao was, of course, uh, Ashbury's student, but is an incredible art critic and, and poet and a, a longtime friend of Ashbury's. And he actually used to grade Ashbury's poems. Ashbury would send him a manuscript and ask him to grade the poems A, B, and C. And John Yao would do this, um, which I write about in the introduction. But anyway, I sent the, the manuscripts to John Yao, and he said that the Kane Richmond Project was a kind of grown-up version of of Girls on the Run, or like a new Girls on the Run. And Girls on the Run, of course, is, is Ashbery's long poem kind of riffing off the artwork of Henry Darger. Um, and it's, an, it's, it's the last manuscript-length poem that, that Ashbery published before um, the, the Kate Richmond Project. Um, 
And so Kane Richmond, Kane Richmond, as I said, is this very incredibly handsome serial actor in the 1930s and 1940s. He was also in um, Brick Bradford, I believe. And another serial that Ashbery mentions is called The Adventures of Rex and Rinty. Um, Rinty being Rin Tin Tin, the, the actor, acting dog. And Ashbery had written about had used a Rin Tin Tin film as inspiration before for his play, The Compromise, so and that he wrote. So it was great to see him kind of return to this old friend. Um, Rin is a repeated character in the poem. So is Rex, who alternates between being a horse and a dog, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, and Kane, it's great to see this character, Kane Richmond, kind of throughout the the plot of this last book I, I wouldn't say he's a you know he kind of floats in and out and I use the word plot very loosely uh, but it does have these kind of narrative moments that engage spy narratives he's also collaging from Tom Swift and Hardy Boys novels mid-century children's novels and um, so language and I had those those novels David Kermani gave them to me uh, so that I could kind of trace how how much John was collaging. And it was really interesting to see those as sources. So he had a lot of sources. And there's so many references to silent films, early American films in the in the text itself. Um, there's a, there's a, a reference to this silent film called um, Moran of the Lady Letty that I ended up watching that was incredible. <laughs> um, a kind of pirate film um, and it's just chock full of references. But the thing that I find most exciting about it is that it employs a serial structure. So there are these intertitles, there are kind of cliffhangers. So it's a kind of avant-garde uh, serial text in this way, which was so exciting. I think Ashbery was, was mostly interested in King Richmond because he was so, so handsome. Mm. Um, if you look up pictures of him, he's quite dashing. Uh, but he did his own stunts, Kane Richmond, a lot of the time, and it was fun getting to know about him a little bit. But as I said, you know, there are these characters, but the, but the, the poem changes so quickly between these sections. It goes from lineated sections to prose sections. Um, and some, some feel kind of like noirish and some feel just like total, like travel narratives. So it's a very interesting and highly collaged manuscript. And I thought it was really important to show that Ashbery in his late career was working on these kind of long projects. People associate his late career with shorter, more collage poems. And I thought it would be really interesting for people to see that he was working on, on, on something, on these, on these kind of larger pieces. One other question I wanted to ask about the, your work as the editor and the, the, the critical material that's here is how far you were concerned to try to generate new discussions um, to place the work in a critical frame and, and maybe even to confront it to ask questions about race and gender that perhaps hadn't been widely asked by Ashbury scholars before? I wanted to leave a lot of room for scholarship by others and this is something I felt very strongly about and that felt very important to me that I wasn't, you know, writing a thesis or a paper. 
and then I let people come to their own conclusions about the work and follow their critical pathways, but also their imaginative pathways inside the work. But um, as you mentioned, there, there were a few times that I felt that I had to step into a more critical role. So one, one, one place where I stepped into a role, a kind of critical role was that I had a idea that Ashbury may have read Walter Benjamin's essay, A Brief History of Photography, and that may have influenced his 1993 poem called The History of Photography. Though I couldn't be sure about that, I had a hunch and I wanted to just kind of put that out there. Um, another moment where I stepped into a more critical role was that there were a few moments of Orientalist language in the Kane Richmond project. Um, and this of course is not out of the ordinary for the New York school or any avant-garde tradition with its roots in modernism. There's a lot of that happening. Um, there, but there were a few moments in, in the Kane Richmond project that made me uncomfortable as a reader with regard to using the non-white other as a kind of prop. And I just did decide to make a short statement about that in my appendix so that others who noticed the thread and the work too had places to turn. Um, a few other scholars, namely the late poet Kevin Killian had written about this facet of the work, specifically in Ashbery's plays. Um, and these moments appear mostly in the Kane Richmond project. And that makes sense because as I said, Ashbery was collaging language from early American Hollywood and mid-century children's literature. And like the Tom Swift books are incredibly racist and he was using them as a collage element. There's actually a moment um, where Ashbery takes a, a particularly racist passage out of one of the Tom Swift books out of context and makes it kind of less so or attempts to deracialize it, which I thought was interesting, although I wasn't sure how successful Ashbury was in kind of in removing race from, from, that, from that quotation. So it was hard to tell what was collage and what was coming from his own imagination. And so I wrote a little note about this thread in the work in the appendices, and I felt it, it was important not to let it go unacknowledged. And I was, of course, a little nervous about it, um, but I had lots of great input about it from other scholars and writers um, and decided it was the right thing to do. And I ultimately felt like it was a, I, I felt, I felt like, oh, am I, you know, chastising John or something? Um, but I ultimately felt like it was a kind of a gesture of love and not criticism. And I think in general that exploring these threads in the work of white writers, instead of kind of sweeping them under the rug and pretending they don't exist, will actually be important to the advancement of scholarship about them. I think I just thought it was important, especially as a white editor, to acknowledge that these moments are there. Um, there are just a few of them, but they are there. And otherwise, someone might feel really alone in noticing them. And I, I, that was something that I really didn't want someone to notice these things and then feel like no one else was noticing them. So that's um, a moment where I kind of stepped into that more critical role. I'm keen for us to talk about the, uh, really the ethics of posthumous yeah. publication. And again, this touches on the work we're doing with Burgess, the, um, the edition 
um, that's in progress includes unpublished novels, short stories, diaries, other kinds of writing which wasn't necessarily intended for publication. I'm sure you'll have had conversations with the Ashbury estate about what to do with work. You, you write in your edition that some work was designated as not for publication and also the, the presence of this large number of unpublished and uncollected poems. So I wonder um, if we could talk quite generally, what kind of ethical problems do arise in relation to these posthumous publications and releasing, you've described this work as unfinished, which is a very interesting term. Um, do you arrive at any conclusions about this through having um, edited it and prepared it for publication? So Ashbury was very fortunate to be able to publish everything that he intended to publish during his lifetime. And so this book really was a special case. Um, I didn't find any of these poems in the archives and Ashbury had been pretty clear that he didn't want people kind of digging through the archives and publishing things. That when he sent something to the archive, it was because he wasn't going to publish it. Um, and so that was something that I talked with his, his partner, David Kermani, and the estate about so much. Um, but Kermani and I ultimately felt that because these, these works, these unfinished works, and I'll talk a little bit about that word in a moment because it means different things for different poems in the book, but that these unfinished works really were kind of in progress. They were things that Ashbury was really interested in and that they just didn't find a home anywhere. Um, Eugene Ritchie, who typed up the prose poems in the middle of the book, Sacred, which I titled Sacred and Profane Dances, um, told me that Ashbury was considering including them in selected prose, which, which Ritchie edited, but that he didn't feel like they fit in the collection, that they, that they were, because they were kind of, they weren't nonfiction works, they weren't, um, you know, art criticism, they, because they were these poetic works, he didn't feel they fit, even though they were these prose poems, these prose pieces that were very unique for Ashbury's work. They're kind of unlike anything of Ashbury's I've ever read. And so, and, and, and Richie told me something very similar about the Kane Richmond project. You know, he was, he was really invested in it. He was working over, on it over many, many months, but he didn't feel like it, they fit, it fit into anything he was publishing at the time. And so it made me see these projects as these kind of, these things that Ashbury really, really liked and was very invested in, but he didn't have the chance or occasion to publish them which felt very different from things that he had kind of put away or stored away. And I, I thought that this was compelling enough and I had many conversations with the estate and with Kermani about it. Ashbury is also very clear about what he didn't want published. If he didn't want a, pub, a poem published, if he didn't like it, he drew a large X through it or he said not for publication. Um, but we felt that it was better if, if something was going to come out, it was better these works than works that, that had been, you know, kind of sent away to the archive or um, had kind of, John had kind of forgotten about. And so, but it was a very difficult decision and one that I didn't take lightly because I know posthumous publication is very complicated. Um, another reason why I thought it was important to publish these works and why the state thought it was important to publish these works is there's 
a lot of scholarship on Ashbery's later work kind of focuses on how it's, you know, these shorter collage, po collage poems that are kind of, you know, funny and have references to pop culture and, but they're short. Um, and I thought it was really important to show and that many of the later works in this book show that he was still invested in the long form and the serial form in his late career. Um, and they show new textures in his writing in his late career. So those are some of the reasons why we felt that these these works kind of could stand out. There's probably, there's a lot more unpublished work and work I haven't seen and work that's probably wonderful. But again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that, that feeling about it, that, that it, that, that feeling of certainty. And what about your own writing? Has that changed as a result of this very close engagement with Ashbury's work? Or do you see yourself as working in a completely different tradition? So I might, I'm what you might call like a third or even fourth generation New York school poet. <laughs> um, but uh, I learned how to be a poet, not just reading John Ashbery, but being around him. Being around him was like, was kind of like being in one of his poems. And I felt so influenced, not just by reading his work, but by being in his presence. So I definitely feel like I am working um, in the tradition of Ashbery in, in his kind of commitment to openness and his commitment to play and experimentation and also work with form. He was incredibly interested in form and so am I. Um, I also come out of a kind of feminist avant-garde tradition. I'm um, associated with a press in, in New York called Belladonna, and that's how I started um, being involved in poetry was through was through Belladonna, which publishes the work of um, experimental women writers for the most part. Um, but I, you know, I'm I'm recording this podcast from the T.S. Eliot House in Gloucester, Massachusetts. It was Eliot's childhood summer home and it's now become a residency for writers and when I was here two years ago I was transcribing the first poem in the book uh, the history of photography and it's a long poem in sections that uses photography as a kind of lyric tether it's not about photography but it makes many references to the history of photography and to um notable photographers who made advancements in the technology of photography. There's Robert Maplethorpe and Moybridge and At Gay and all of these wonderful figures. And as I said, it's this long poem in sections. It's this beautiful, beautiful poem. And I was transcribing it here two years ago. And I noticed that I start that I, I started writing a long poem in Roman numeral sections while I was transcribing it. Um, and so there's this way in which transcription, like taking dictation, it was this kind of language flowing through with me. And it really influenced this poem I wrote called Balustrade, um, which was not quite as long as that as the Ashbury poem, but was also trying to do something. It was loosely about a ballet. Um, by George Balanchine and was commissioned by the New York City Ballet. And I was like, oh, how do I write a ballet, a poem about a ballet without writing a poem about a ballet? And I had this great blueprint um, in this poem that was both about and not about photography. And the form kind of kind of was a was a nod to that, to that form of Ashbury. So I definitely feel 
I'm working in a similar tradition and I feel so grateful um, to Ashbury's work and I'm always feeling in conversation with it. And what's next for you, Emily? Uh, do you have projects and publications in, in mind at the moment? Yeah, so it's re- it's been really wonderful to be able to kind of swerve away from this project, which, which I've been working on, as I said, since 2018 and work on my own projects. Um, I'm currently... I'm I'm stepping a, I'm tentatively stepping a toe into the world of fiction. I'm trying to write some short stories, um, and I'm also finishing up a collection, my second collection of poems. Well, we can look forward to all of that work. Um, thank you for joining us, and congratulations on uh, the, what you've achieved here. It's a scholarly edition, which is also human and engaging and and playful as well. That word again meeting the needs of scholars and general readers alike. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Parallel Movement of the Hands by John Ashbury, edited by Emily Skillings, is out now from Carcanet and available at your favourite place to buy books. You can see more about Emily Skillings and read her poetry at www.emilyskillings.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.